be the Lord's will this morning, I'd like to speak to you about two men who had the same name, one in the Old Testament and one in the New, and that name is Saul. In the Old Testament, we have Saul of Kish. In the New Testament, we have Saul of Tarsus. Now, Saul of Kish, Kish was a man, and that was the name of Saul's father. Saul of Tarsus, Tarsus is the name of a city in a place called Cilicia, which was a Roman province in the Roman Empire. These two men have a few similarities, but a, a lot of contrast. Of course, they both had the same name. We find they were both Jews. Um, they both had positions of importance in their lifetime. But I want to compare them in several different ways, Lord willing, and then I'd like to focus on the 28th chapter of 1 Samuel concerning the life of Saul of Kish. Saul of Kish, in the beginnings, we read in 1 Samuel chapter 9, was a man with an humble spirit and an humble disposition. We find that he, in response to Samuel, the prophet who had uh, found him as a response to the people of Israel desiring a king, he said, my, I'm a Benjamite, and of all the tribes of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin is the least. And in the tribe of Benjamin, of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin, my family is the least of all the families. I believe we see here a true humility that Saul of Kish had in the very beginning. Now, if you go back and remember a little more background, Israel had desired to have a king, and in so doing, they rejected the God of heaven who had delivered them so many times in their past history. We find where Saul, actually, excuse me, Samuel, tells the people of Israel after they make this request, what's going to happen? He said, the man that you desire to be king, he says, he shall take your sons, and they shall drive his chariots. In other words, they shall be officers uh, and servants in his kingdom. It says, your daughters shall be cooks and confectionaries. It says, your maidservants and your men servants shall be taken in to do the king's service. He says, he'll take a tenth of your crop, etc., etc. And when it comes down to it, he says, when you call upon the Lord, and this is the most important thing, when you call upon the Lord, he will not hear you. That's the most important thing he said concerning all the things that they could say. And when you call upon the Lord, he will not hear you. And that's a very serious state to be in, to call upon the Lord, and the Lord will not hear or answer us. But the Bible says the people hearken not to the voice of Samuel, obey not the voice of Samuel, and they said, we will have a king. Uh, they had a mindset to where they didn't have any hearing ears to hear what Samuel had told them. So we find where the Lord tells Samuel, Samuel was grieved at this. And he tell, tells Samuel, they've not rejected you, but they have rejected me. Which in essence, that's exactly what had taken place. In Hosea chapter 13 verse 12, the Bible says that God said, I gave them a king in my anger. And I took him away in my raft. Notice, he did give him a king, but he wasn't pleased with it. He gave him a king in his anger. The Lord sometimes will give you and give me and give all of us something we ask when it's not in our best interest so that we will learn the lesson. Usually a very painful lesson the Lord allows us to experience. Now, we also see some of the physical characteristics of Saul, of Kish, in that ninth chapter of 1 Samuel. We're told that he was a, a goodly man, or we're told that he was a choice person, 
a goodly man, and from his shoulders and upward, he was above all people. And we're told later on there was none like him among all the Israelites. From a physical description here, we have somebody that was very appealing to the flesh. Uh, he was someone that could be easily identified in a group of people. He was simply bigger than anyone else. Uh, but his attitude was that he was little, and that was good. We find in 1 Samuel chapter 15 where Samuel is rebuking him for his disobedience and not doing what the Lord said. He says, when thou was little in thine own sight, did not God anoint you to be king over Israel? There was a time that Saul was little in his own sight. There was a time when Saul felt like being a family in the tribe of Benjamin, and his family was the least of all the families, and Benjamin was the least of all the tribes, there would be no reason for someone to single him out. There'd be no reason for anyone to, you know, point him out or separate him to be a king. And this was the attitude he should have continued to possess in his lifetime, but we'll see he quickly lost that. Now the Lord blessed him with everything he stood in need of to be successful. I don't know there's another man in the Word of God who was given so many opportunities. I don't know of anybody else in the Word of God that had so many advantages that God gave unto him. God gave him the spirit to prophesy. The word prophesy used here means actually to praise God. He gave him another heart. He turned him into another man. And those that were around him, he gave them also new hearts and a spirit to prophesy. He had everything he needed to be successful, did he not? But the people, this was the people's choice. It wasn't God's choice. It was the people's choice. Samuel warned the people. The people hearkened not. The people did not obey Samuel's voice. And the last thing he tells me is, you will call upon God. After all these things come to pass I've told you about, you'll call upon God, and he won't hear you. That should have been enough to have startled them into uh, reconsideration of what they were wanting, you see. Now, after all this was said and done, and Saul is pointed out by Samuel as the one them they had chosen, we find Samuel saying this. And I want you to know as we go through some of this, that the most important man at this time of Israel's history was not Saul. The most important man was Samuel. Saul was the king, but Samuel was the prophet. Samuel was a great man of God, a man of faith, a man of prayer. He was the most important man. Oftentimes this may be the case. You take a look at the Apostle Paul. In Acts chapter 27, he's on a ship filled with prisoners. And they're on the way to Rome. That ship will eventually be busted all to pieces. But every prisoner on that ship will be spared. Not a one of them will lose their life. I asked you this morning, who's the most important person on that ship? Was it the shipmaster? Was it the centurion? Uh, was it the soldiers? The most important man on that ship was a man by the name of Paul. And all those men's lives were spared because of Paul. I doubt they ever knew anything about that, but that's beside the point. God spared them all for the sake of this one man, Paul. Paul was not going to perish, and all the rest of them didn't perish either. Samuel was the most important man in Israel's history. We'll see that a little bit later on, Lord willing. But we find in the 12th chapter of 1 Samuel, where Samuel, in the last three verses, said, I will not cease, he says, I will not sin, I will not sin in ceasing to pray for you. Even though Samuel's dissatisfied, Daniel, excuse me, Samuel, I think was really heartbroken 
uh, Samuel was upset with the request of the people. He says, I will not sin in ceasing to pray for you. Well, that teaches me a lesson. That teaches me I'm not to cease praying for my president. I'm not so happy right now with our government. I'm not so happy for the president all the way down, but I'm still going to pray for him. I would sin by ceasing to pray for the leaders of our nation. I would sin in ceasing to pray for our president, those in Congress, our governor, every, all officials from the, from the county commissioners all the way up to Washington, D.C. They need our prayers. He says, I will not sin in ceasing to pray for you. He said, but I will teach you, notice this, the good and the right way. He says, for consider how great things God has done for you. He's trying to rally the Israelites to think soberly. Consider what great things God has done for you. And I'm going to teach you the good way. I'm going to teach you the right way. I'm not going to cease praying for you. And so you see what kind of man Samuel was. He said, but if you disregard these things and disobey God, it says God, he says, God will do away with you and your king. Now that's plain and simple, isn't it? I mean, that's black and white. That's very clear language. He says, consider what thing, great things the Lord has done for you. Serve him in sincerity and in truth. And God will bless you. But if you reject him and reject his commandments, he'll depart from you and you'll be destroyed, both you and your king. Now, of course, if you're a Bible reader and you've read this in times past, you know that's exactly what's going to happen and what is going to take place. The next chapter, chapter 13, reveals how Saul began to have a change. He began to lose his humility. And that's never a good thing. You know, there's some things that's taught one time in the Bible and that's sufficient. There are other things that's taught numerous times in the Bible, so it should get our attention when that's the case. Well, pride and humility is taught in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. We know Solomon tells us in Proverbs that a haughty spirit leadeth to destruction, and a pride goeth before fall. We know that. We have examples of pride. Numerous, King Nebuchadnezzar was an example of pride in how he fell. Naaman was an example of pride. We find him being hung on the gallows he made for Mordecai. In the New Testament, both in James and also in 1 Peter, we're told to clothe ourselves with humility. We're told to um, be humble, humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, for God resisted the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Now Saul is going to become a proud man. He's going to become an envious man. He's going to become a jealous man. And I'm going to say to each one of us here this morning, including myself, uh, the ability to become envious lies within my human nature. The ability to become jealous in an ungodly way lies within my nature. Uh, the ability to walk around with a proud look lies within my nature. All of us uh, have the qualifications this morning based on human nature to be proud, to be envious, and to be jealous. That's why we find numerous exhortations in the New Testament. In the fourth chapter of the book of Ephesians. In the third chapter of the book of Colossians, we are told to put off the old man and put on the new man. We're told to put off lying. We're told to put off malice and things of this nature. If it were not possible for me to be guilty of that, that verse wouldn't be in there. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 1, the apostle Peter says, laying aside all malice and envy and things of this nature, he says, as newborn babes desire the, desire the sincere milk of the word. Now, if it were not possible for me to have a life of envy and these things, these things wouldn't be in there. 
but they're there because the possibility of these things overtaking me is there if I don't mortify the old man. You go uh, back to Colossians chapter 3, and Paul says, but mortify the members of your body. Mortify, mortition, mortality. What's all that have in common? Death, right? We are to mortify these things in our bodies. We are to try to slay them because they will lead us astray and bring us our lives down to destruction. Now, Saul did not do this. He allowed his pride to get in the way. We come to 1 Samuel chapter 13, and you'll find where Sam, excuse me, Saul, all these S's, anyway, Saul um, is waiting for Samuel. Samuel doesn't get there quite on time, so Saul takes matters in his own hands, and he makes an offering to God. Though he were king, he did not have the right to do that. Though he were king, he didn't have the authority to do that. Because God had made a separation between the throne and the altar. The altar belonged to the priest, not the king. And of course, the throne belonged to the king and not the priest. God made a separation. But Saul transgresses that. Saul offers a sacrifice which he was not allowed to do. When Samuel came on the scene, he rebukes Saul for this. Saul tries to blame Samuel for being late. Well, Samuel was a little bit late in getting there, but that didn't give Saul the, you know, the authority to take matters in his own hands. And so we're going to find Samuel telling Saul something here. He says, thy kingdom shall not continue with thee. This is the first thing the Lord said about what's going to happen to him. Thy kingdom shall not continue with thee, for God has sought a man after his own heart. He doesn't tell us who that is. He just says, God has sought a man after his own heart. So Saul knows at this point, according to Samuel, his kingdom is not going to continue. Now we come to the 15th chapter of 1 Samuel, and we're going to find where Israel does battle against the Amalekites. And God instructs Saul very clearly that he's to destroy every individual, every person, the king on down, and he's to destroy every animal. He's not to bring anything back alive. Well, Saul wins the battle, but he doesn't obey the Lord. He spares the king. He spares the best of the sheep, the best of the oxen. Samuel comes on the scene, and he asks Saul the question, Why hast thou not obeyed the voice of the Lord God? Plain and simple. Why have you not obeyed God? Why have you disobeyed God and not kept his commandment? And Saul says, Well, I've done what the Lord told me to do. And Samuel says, If that's the case, why do I hear the lowing of the oxen? And the bleeding of the sheep. I wouldn't be hearing these sounds if you did what God commands you to do, because there'd be no sheep to bleep, and there'd be no oxen to low. I hear the low of the oxen, the bleeding of the sheep. I know you haven't done what God commanded you to do. You know what Saul did? He blamed the people. He says, you know how the people are. Saul was really good at compromising. Saul was really good at passing the book, and man's been excellent at that ever since Adam tried the same thing in the Garden of Eden. Man excels at that. I mean, you know, I'll tell a little bit about myself here, I guess. When the children were at home, I could always blame them for losing my keys. I could always blame them for losing the remote control. I could always blame them for losing my pen or whatever it might be. They're all gone. That just leaves Karen. Do <laughs> you think I'm going to take the blame for all that? I need to, because usually I'm the one to blame. We lost something recently, 
and we blame the kids, even though they're gone. We still blamed them. And, and to come to find out, uh, at, <laughs> a little bit later on, we found what we were looking for. And it wasn't the kids' fault. It was Karen's fault this time. But anyway, <laughs> I'm usually the one to blame. I mean, we excel at this, do we not? I mean, I, I, all of y'all are guilty. You might as well shake your head in agreement. We all excel in pushing things off on somebody else, blaming somebody else. You know, that's just the way it is. That's our human nature at its best, or may I say, at its worst. Saul excelled at it. Here's what Saul was told by Samuel. He said, because you've rejected God, he's going to reject you. He says, God's going to rent, that means to tear, R-E-N-T, means to tear. He's going to rent the kingdom from your hands and give it to a neighbor that's better than you. Now, we, we still don't know who the man's name is, but and we know it's David, but he still hadn't named him here. A man after God's own heart, a neighbor of his that's better than him, he says, I've rent the kingdom from you. Now, notice here, it's going to be several years before the kingdom is actually taken away from Saul, but it's just as sure as taken away right now as it was down the road several years later. You know what the next verse says? It says, God, well, he's causing the strength of Israel, spelled with a capital S. But the strength of Israel shall not lie nor repent because he's not a man to do those things. If this is what God has said he's going to do, he's going to do it. He's not going to change his mind and he's not going to lie about it. What the Lord said right here was facts. And so Samuel tells all that. Now this was very grievous in the sight of God. Saul became very envious at David because David was being highly blessed of God. Time and time again, you find the expression, and God was with David, and God was with David, and God was with David. God preserved David. David would inquire of the Lord, and the Lord would answer him. God was with him as a teenage boy when he slew the bear and the lion with his bare hands. He was with David when he went out to fight against the Philistines on numerous battles. He was with David and went to fight to Goliath in 1 Samuel chapter 17. And the women began to sing a song that God has blessed uh, Samuel, uh, excuse me, uh, Saul to slay his thousands, but David his ten thousands. Both was true. Saul had been blessed. Saul had won his battles. God had been with Saul prior to these times that we find recorded in 1 Samuel 13 and 15. He won the battles against the Philistines. He had no reason to be envious or jealous. He should have been really happy that God had blessed somebody in his kingdom that was under him to do such great exploit. But he wasn't happy about it. He didn't rejoice about it. He was envious about it, and he was jealous of it. Now, envy. You know, in Acts chapter 7, Stephen tells us it was for envy that the patriarchs sold Joseph into the, to the Ishmaelites down into Egyptian slavery. Now, you go back and read Genesis chapter 37, you'll find where they were angry with Joseph. you find where they were envious at Joseph and find where they hated Joseph. But Stephen says it was for envy that they sold him. You read in the life of Pilate when he was dealing with the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us in Matthew that Pilate knew the Jews had delivered him into their hands for envy. It's part of our human nature. Look at uh, Titus 3.3. For we are sometimes foolish, serving divers' lust and pleasures, envious, hateful, and hating one another. Envy is part of our human depraved nature. I'll say one time, I'm going to say again, pride, envy, and jealousy lies within all of us in our human nature. 
And if we don't mortify the deeds of the body, if we don't lay aside these things, these things can emerge and pop up and control our lives and lead us down the road to destruction just like it did Saul of Kish. Saul's life begins a spiral downward, downward, downward till we come to 1 Samuel chapter 28. And 1 Samuel chapter 28 opens up by telling us that Samuel had died and they buried him in Ramah. That's the second time we were told that. The first time is in 1 Samuel 25. So why tell us again? Why tell us again? Two or three reasons for this. Number one, I emphasize again, the most important man in Israel's history at this time is not Saul the king, it's Samuel the prophet. See, Samuel gave counsel to Saul, and Samuel would tell Saul and the nation of Israel what they could do and shouldn't do for God to bless them. We find that Israel's in trouble right here, and Samuel's not around to rescue them. We find that Saul's in trouble right now, but Samuel's not around to counsel him. An example of this can be found in 1 Samuel chapter 7. You go to 1 Samuel chapter 7, and Samuel is going to tell the Israelites, he says, put away the false gods from among you, and serve, prepare your heart, and serve the Lord, and serve the Lord only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines, plain and simple. You want to be delivered out of your uh, nemesis, the hands of your nemesis, the hands of your enemy that was always right there as thorns in your side all the time. You want to be delivered from them? It's quite simple. You put away the false gods among you, Astaroth and Balaam and them, and you prepare your heart and you serve the Lord only, and he will deliver you out of the Philistines' hands. Then it says, and Samuel prayed for them. And the Bible does say they prepared their hearts, they put Ashtaroth away, they put Balaam away, and they served the God only. At this particular time, they did exactly what Samuel said. Samuel prayed for them. Then the Philistines came up against them again. And the Bible says they came to Samuel, they cried to Samuel, they said, intercede on our behalf, intercede on our behalf, that God would deliver us in the hands of these Philistines. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And he offered a suckling of a lamb to the Lord. And the Bible says, and the Lord heard him. And the Lord heard him. Samuel was a man of faith. Samuel was a godly man. Samuel walked close with the Lord. And Samuel is the most important man in their history here. He instructed Saul and the Israelites what to do concerning this Philistines. He gave Saul, Saul counsel. He prayed for Israel. So he intercedes, he prays, he offers a second of the lamb and offering sacrifice here on behalf of the Israelites. And the Bible says God sent a great thunder and discomfited the Philistines, which means confused. The Philistines were so confused on this occasion, it says they were all slain by the Israelites. That's all God had to do. I've heard some loud claps of thunder in my lifetime. It kind of caused me to almost jump out of my shoes. I doubt I've heard anything that came close to what the Philistines heard on this occasion here. They were so confused by all this noise. It was like when, Benj uh, excuse me, when Gideon's 300 men, when they gave the shout and blew on the trumpet, the enemy was so confused, they went around and they slew their own selves. They slew one another. And God gave them the victory. And this is when Samuel made an offering to God, set up a stone and called it Ebenezer, which means hitherto hath the Lord helped us. That's a very famous, famous uh, expression. 
and uh, you know, and a very well-known thing that took place in Israel's history, Ebenezer. There's Primitive Baptist Church is called Ebenezer. And they take him to their account in 1 Samuel chapter 7, where that word again means, hitherto hath the Lord helped us. Samuel prayed for them. He did not cease praying for them. He instructed them in the right and the good way. We find where he made the offering, the sacrifice, he gave them counsel. But we come to 1 Samuel chapter 28. It says Samuel died and they buried him. They no longer have Samuel. Also, when a leader like Samuel dies, the word gets out. I'm sure the Philistines heard about Samuel dying, and I believe that emboldened the Philistines to do what they're going to do here in 1 Samuel chapter 28 when they gathered against Israel. One of the most vulnerable times a church can go through is when they're without a pastor. When they're officially without a pastor and there's not a shepherd to lead them, a shepherd to direct them, a shepherd to instruct them, a shepherd to watch over them, they're in one of the most vulnerable times they're ever in. So I don't want you to ever forget that. That can be a very serious time. My heart goes out to churches when they don't have a pastor. And, and a lot of times they'll call me and ask me, can I come and be with them? And I'll be glad to help them if I can. But, uh, you know, they need to be getting other men, generally speaking. But I certainly can pray for them. But I know they're in a very vulnerable position. Satan sees this. Satan knows this. And Satan will slip right into the ranks and cause dissension and confusion and disagreement in a heartbeat. So a church without a pastor can be very, very vulnerable. And now Israel without Samuel is very vulnerable. And the enemy is emboldened by this. We're told something here about Saul, something he actually did that was right and good. We're told in the second and third verse where Saul put away all familiar spirits. Now they go by different names in the Old Testament. One of the names is necromancer, uh, witches. These were people, they still exist today, they've always existed, taking advantage of people's superstition and ignorance. And so people would come to these witches, these necromancers, they'd pay them money for them to call up a spirit of someone who had died in times past. Now, I want you to understand several things here this morning as we take a look at what's going to happen here. This is one of the darkest nights. There's a lot of dark night scenes in the Bible, but this is one of the most dramatic that you're going to read about. Saul has issued out an edict or a decree that they all should be put aside. That was the right thing to do. I can give you four or five Old Testament references here in Moses' law that's strictly forbidden anybody going to a wizard, anybody going to a witch, anybody going to a necromancer, modern day language, anybody going to somebody with a crystal ball or going to a palm reader. Superstition lies within all of us. Somebody says, are you superstitious? What do you answer them? Every one of us has got a superstitious nature about us. How many of you will walk under a ladder? How many of you will not X out your windshield when a black cat runs across the road in front of you? My wife's mother never would, let's see if I get this right, when she went in a certain door in the house, she'd always go back out the same door. Never she'd go out a different door. Always the same door she came in, she'd go out. Baseball players. Batter won't get in the batter's box until he's undone his uh, gloves two or three times a piece. 
gets in, next pitch, steps out, does it all again, even though they're as tight as they can be. Why do they do that? Baseball players, when they run off the field, will not step on the first baseline or the third baseline. They'll jump over it every time. But they're not so superstitious. Oh, no. Everybody has that in their nature. I hope that you don't try to determine your future by looking at your horoscope or horoscope. The horoscope is a horoscope. And when you get your Chinese food, don't tell me that you don't like to crack open that little Chinese cookie and get that piece of paper out. Look what it says. I'm going to have a great day tomorrow. <laughs> and you've got to, that made me feel good. People, by nature, are superstitious. I've seen my children watching a ball game when they're pulling four real, real strong and they won't move a foot or a toe as long as things are going well. And they put on the team's colors like that's really going to help them. We're all superstitious by nature. But it's a great sin against God when you rely on something like that other than the true and living God. Saul is greatly afraid, we're told. Why should he be afraid? The God of Israel is a true and living God, so why should he be afraid? No matter how many Philistines were out there in the army, why should he be afraid? Because he's lived a life of disobedience. One thing right after another has brought him down to the lowest point a man could go. He calls upon God, and God does not answer him. He does not answer him by dreams. He does not answer him by Urim. And he does not answer them by a prophet. Here's three ways God oftentimes communicated with people in the Old Testament day. Now, sometimes he just spoke directly to them. I understand that. But a lot of times God communicated through dreams in the Old Testament day. We didn't, they didn't have a Bible like we have today. And the word Urim means light. It was one of two things in the breastplate of the high priest. Part of the high priest's clothing was to have a breastplate on, and in that breastplate was the Urim and the Thummim. Urim meant light, and Thummim meant perfection. They represented God as being light and God being perfect. It represented the fact that this was God's arrangement, and when Israel was doing right, God would bless the high priest to be a blessing for them, make the offering, sacrifice, etc. You had Urim and you had Thummim. It's kind of a little, mysterious, uh, a little mysterious about all this, but nevertheless, this is how God oftentimes communicated with his people through the Urim and the Thummim. If you go back early in David's life, you'll find where he had a priest that had the Urim, and he also had a prophet. Saul didn't have any of these three. He calls on God. God's not going to answer him. Since this is not a chapter you're going to read daily, I'm going to read part of this. 1 Samuel 28, and when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord answered him not, neither by dreams, nor by Urim, nor by prophets. So what's Saul going to do now? Then said Saul unto his servant, Seek me a woman that hath a familiar spirit, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, Behold, there is a woman that hath a familiar spirit at Ondor. Wonder how she escaped his decree a little earlier. It shows it wasn't 100% effective, right? All these both have been put away, but here's one woman that hadn't been put away. His servants, we know of a woman that hath a familiar spirit. 
She's known as the witch of Andor. It really represents the devil. That's what it represents. It's one thing not to call upon God, and Saul did not call upon God like he should have. It's another thing to call upon God, and due to your disobedience, God not hear you. That ought to startle us. That ought to make us reconsider. It ought to cause us to have a repentant attitude and think, well, why is God not answering me? What have I done? What have I have not done? Why is God not answering me? And then it's quite another thing to go to the devil himself to try to get some guidance. And that's exactly what Saul is doing. This is exactly how low Saul has fallen. Saul disguised himself. If you're ever going to go somewhere and you think you've got to disguise yourself to go, I'd just say you probably shouldn't go. Would that be wise? Uh, it, 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 did I just give you an intellectual gem there or what? I mean, if you're going to go somewhere and you've got to disguise yourself and put on your hat and, and sunglasses and everything else before you go, I'd say you ought to reconsider and just not go. Disguised himself, put on another raiment, and he went, and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night. <laughs> Anytime you're going somewhere by night, that's wrong too. And he said, I pray thee, divine unto me by the familiar spirit, and bring him up whom I shall name unto thee. And the woman said unto him, Behold, thou knowest that Saul had done, how he hath cut off those that have familiar spirits and the wizards out of the land. See, this is punishable by death. Wherefore then last thou a snare for my life to cause me to die? But Saul swore to her by the Lord. I just can't hardly get any lower than Saul's getting now. And Saul swore to her by the Lord, saying, As the Lord liveth, there shall no punishment happen to thee for this thing. And when the woman, and, and, and said the woman, Whom shall I bring unto thee? He said, Bring me up Samuel. He's already asked the Lord. The Lord won't answer him. He wouldn't call on Samuel like he should have while Samuel was living. But now he wants to talk to Samuel one more time. Now, let me give you a fact. No person, man or woman, has the ability, has the power to call the spirit of someone who's died, whether it be in heaven or hell, back to earth again. Okay? I hope I really don't think I should have him say that, but I think I will. All right? Nobody has that power. This woman does not have that power. But you're going to see something happen here that's quite amazing. You're going to find this, see, this woman... She's used to deceiving people and taking money from people and making like she's communicating with somebody who's already died and she's communicating with their spirit. And people pay people money to do this kind of thing. All this stuff I was talking to you about superstition, one thing or another. It happens all the time. The very idea that you cross your windshield once again, that black cat runs across there. You ought to just thank God that you didn't hit the cat. You know, I got one word to say for all that. It's just hogwash. <laughs> and so here we have Saul going to this woman, familiar spirit. She says, bring me up Samuel. He should know better than that. Bring me up Samuel. And when the woman saw Samuel, <laughs> she cried with a loud voice. This woman is startled. She wasn't expecting that. She knew she didn't have the power to do all this. And all of a sudden, Samuel appears. 
She's shook. She's startled. She's amazed. She's astonished. She can't believe what just happened. And the woman spake to Saul, saying, Why hast thou deceived me? For thou art Saul. And the king said unto her, Be not afraid, for what sawest thou? The woman said unto Saul, I saw God ascending out of the earth. And he said unto her, What form is he of? She said, An old man cometh up, and he's covered with a mantle. And Saul perceived that it was Samuel, and he stooped with his face to the ground and bowed himself. I believe that God just miraculously, divinely intervened on this occasion here. Sam, Saul wanted to see Samuel. God's going to let Saul see Samuel. He does the miraculous. If he hadn't caused her, him to see Samuel, she would have come up with some story that wasn't true. But he wants to see Samuel. God's going to let him see Samuel. And Samuel said to Saul, Why hast thou disquieted me to bring me up? And Saul answered, I am sore distressed for the Philistines make war against me, and God's departed from me, and answereth me no more, neither by prophets nor by dreams. Therefore I've called thee, that thou mayest make known unto me, what shall I do? Then said Samuel, Wherefore then dost thou ask of me, seeing the Lord has departed from thee, and become an enemy? Why are you asking me, Saul? If God's departed from you, he's become your enemy. God has righteously rejected Saul. He has righteously departed from Saul. He says, why are you calling on me? You called on God, God didn't answer you, why are you calling on me? Then said Samuel, wherefore then dost ask of me, seeing the Lord has departed from thee, has become thine enemy. And the Lord hath done to him as he spake by me, for the Lord hath rent the kingdom out of thine hand and given it to thy neighbor even to David. You notice what he's doing here? Samuel, whose body's in this earth, his spirit's in heaven, but God allows his spirit to leave there and come down here and communicate with Saul. He's telling him something that he had already told Saul back in 1 Samuel 15. He's telling Paul, Saul about past events that's already took place. He had a hand in. It's exactly what he told him. We read earlier here from 1 Samuel chapter 15. He told him something of the past that was totally accurate. He said, because thou obeyest not the voice of the Lord, nor execute his fierce wrath upon Amalek. Therefore hath the Lord done this thing unto thee this day. Now he's going to tell us something about the future. Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with thee into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow shalt thou and thy sons be with me. The Lord also shall deliver the host of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. He tells him about a battle that's going to take place the next day. It's going to take place exactly like Samuel says. You're going to read it in the last chapter of 1 Samuel. We find where Samuel tells Saul something of the past with perfect detail. He also tells Saul something's going to happen the next day in the future with perfect detail. So the question might be, Brother Lawrence, when our loved ones leave this world and go to heaven, do they look down from heaven and see all the events taking place on this earth which would no doubt cause them distraction from worshiping God and be sad in their hearts. I can assure you, nobody in heaven is sad. There is no sadness in glory. There's no sadness in heaven. There's no distractions in heaven. 
You know why there's not more people here this morning? Because the attractions of this world have distracted God's people to make them think there's more things important than being here at the house of the Lord. There's no sadness in heaven. There's no distractions in heaven. What's going on in heaven? Perfect worship is going on in heaven. Those in heaven, if they could see and do see anything going on in this earth, they see through the eyes of God the perfection, my friends, of the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and how he's put away all sins as far as the east is from the west. Personally, I believe this is an exceptional situation here. Personally, I think this was an exceptional situation that God intervened miraculously, allowed Samuel to come back and rebuke Saul for a final time. He tells him events of the past with precise accuracy. He tells him of a future event that's going to happen the next day with precise details and accuracy. It comes to pass just exactly like he said. God allowed Saul to recognize Samuel. That's no different than when the Lord Jesus Christ went on the mountain of transfiguration. He takes Peter, James, and John with him. And on the mountain of transfiguration, the Lord Jesus Christ is transfigured between two Old Testament men, Moses and Elijah, whom Peter, James, and John have never seen. They've never, they lived hundreds of years apart. Never seen them, didn't know what they looked like. So how did they know it was Moses and Elijah? Because God is God. <laughs> That's my answer to a lot of God's people's questions, because God is God. Uh, the last funeral I preached just a few weeks ago, um, Sherwin Fuquay, after the funeral, this lady came up to me. And I know she had, I mean, I had eye contact with her the whole time. She came up to me and she said, I want to ask you about something you said. And it had to do with the very fact that God's going to bring the bodies of all the saints of God, uh, you know, back together with the soul and the spirit and resurrect their bodies. No matter what happened to them or where at, she said, I just don't understand that. Uh, how can somebody that's gone back to the dust of the earth? How can somebody that's been swallowed by a whale? How can somebody uh, uh, got uh, engulfed in a volcano? I said, because God is God. <laughs> I said, God made man from the dust of the earth in the very beginning. God knows where every molecule, my friends, uh, that you had when you was here in this world, he knows where it's at. God doesn't have to have a search party going on when he comes back again. The Lord's not going to have to hire a P.I. to come back when he comes. I'm telling you, my friends, God knows where you're at no matter what shape, form, or fashion your body's in. Because God is God. If you understand who God is, that God is God, then you don't worry about them things, right? My, my, my. Hey, here's people buried and got tons of concrete poured over top of them with towns and cities and everything else that's been built over the bodies of people who died in centuries past. You think that's going to hear to God? Oh, my goodness. The uh, way people think astonish me at times. God is God. He's omnipotent. He has all power in heaven and earth. You go to this last chapter of 1 Samuel, you'll find that Saul goes out on the battlefield and he's slain. But first of all, he's wounded. He's got three sons. They all suffer death, just like Samuel said. We find where Saul is not dead. He gets his armor bearer to go ahead and finish him off, but he will not do it. Because the Philistines and, and armies in that day had the reputation. When they won a battle, they would come and they would torture those that were still living. And Saul did not want that. 
But the armor bearer will not do it. So Saul fell upon his sword and took his own life on the battlefield. He lost his kingdom. He lost his crown. He lost his life. But the apostle Paul is another case. I meant to say more about him when my time is quickly fleeing. The apostle Paul had a heaven-earth experience. It's according to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. You're going to find here where Saul has an earthly heaven experience here with Samuel, but it's quite different than the one Paul had recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 12. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, we find where Paul's caught up to the third heaven, to a place called paradise, where he heard things that's not lawful to be uttered. Now that expression lawful means possible, and the word uttered there means inexpressible. It was not possible for Paul to be able to express to us, you and me, what he saw and heard in heaven's pure world. He had a glorious experience, didn't he? He went to heaven, my friends, and he came back. <laughs> he called it paradise. And, 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 and in fact, there was a thorn given him in his side. And he prayed three times that God might remove it out of there. God wouldn't remove it. He just said, my grace is sufficient for thee. He said, if I glory in anything, I'll glory in my infirmities, my friends. That's what he gloried in. The word Saul, uh, Saul in the New Testament means dedicated one, but his name was changed to Paul, which means little one. And according to 2 Corinthians 10.10, 10, the apostle Paul's uh, physical condition was far opposite that of Saul of Tarsus, excuse me, of Kish. It says his, his body was weak and his speech contentful, although his letters were weighty and powerful. According to a first, history, history, uh, first century historian, the Apostle Paul was a short man, humpback, eyes close together and a crooked nose. Very unimpressed as far as a man's sight is concerned. So God used this very unimpressive man to write 14 out of the 27 books of the New Testament. He used this very unimpressive man outwardly to write every church letter. He used this very unimpressive man from a physical outward point of view to write two letters, three letters to ministers, one to an individual Philemon, and then to the nation of Israel in the book of Hebrews, 14 out of the 27 books. He was the apostle of the Gentiles, the greatest missionary evangelist who's ever walked the shores of time. He's just a very unimpressive little man to do all that. I love that. The witch of Andor. <laughs> she didn't raise Samuel. God did. <laughs> God brought him back to give the message to him. And when it's all over, the Bible says that Saul was so weak. He was so terrified and so weak. He lost his appetite. But the woman came to him and says, you need to eat something. She finally convinced him to eat something, and it was his last meal. This first Samuel opens up with brightness and ends with darkness. What happened to Saul can happen to any of us. If we allow pride and envy jealousy to come into our lives uncontrolled. We fail to keep the commandments of God that's clearly given to us. See, Saul willfully, willfully transgressed God's laws. 
And therefore, he rejected God, and God rejected him. But I will close this morning with the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. He said, For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. See, when Paul, the Bible doesn't tell us how Paul died. History does. If it's, you know, reliable as what it can be. But the historians tell us that Paul died at the hand of Nero, the wicked ruler of Rome, and he was beheaded there in Rome. But if he did, he died an honorable death because he was faithful. Notice in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says, The time of my departure is at hand. I fought a good fight. I kept the faith. I have finished my course. And it says, Henceforth there is a crown of righteousness laid up for me, and not for me only, for all those that love his appearing. That's what he said in his, in his last day. He knew he didn't have many days left. But he said, I fought a good fight. Saul did not of Kish. I finished my course. Paul did everything God intended him to do here in this life. There was not another letter for Paul to write. He wrote them all that God intended him to write. For me to live as Christ and to die as gain. He experienced gain, not a loss, but gain. When our loved ones leave this world and go home to glory, they have a gain. We have a loss, they have a gain. He says in verse 23, I'm in a straight betwixt two, having a desire to be with the Lord, which is far better. If you don't know, it's not just better, but far better. Having a desire to be the Lord, which is far better, but nevertheless to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. Brother, there are times when we have meetings like this. Uh, I just feel like right now in my spirit, I'm just ready to go on and be with the Lord. I know a few preachers who died in the pulpit trying to preach while they, when they died. If the Lord's fit to see that, do that for me, I'll be thankful. But then on Monday and Tuesday, I think, well, Lord, if you leave me here a little longer, maybe I can do a little bit to help my children, my grandchildren, and the Lord's children, your church. If you just let me stay here a little longer, <laughs> a little longer, uh, I'd be appreciative of that. You know, that's what Paul's saying. I'm in a straight betwixt two, having a desire to be with the Lord, which is far better, but nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. He wanted to help God's people as long as he had breath in his body. And his last days, he tells Timothy to bring him three things. He says, you bring me my coat, you bring me the parchments, and you bring me um, uh, uh, books part of my coat. You know, uh, he, he had books to read and study. He went parchments to write on, and he's like the rest of us. He didn't like to be cold. So he said, bring my coat with you too. It's cold over here. <laughs> Thank you very much.